Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our series of Tough Love. I'm excited to be able to kind of turn a corner in this book, being able to get to some things that I think are going to be very applicable. If you do need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get you one. Things that will hopefully be helpful to us. There's a hand over here. I see that hand. And again, I, I do appreciate your prayer for this trip to Haiti. One of the things that I would specifically ask for prayer in is for me to be able to see how we at Genesis can be involved uh, in the future, that this trip would be the first of many trips and it would be the beginning of, of something substantial within our community. I know a few of you who've said or have approached me and say, hey, are we going to go again? I would like to go and I would love for anyone who wants to go to be able to go. And I'd like to develop an opportunity for that to take place as well as for us to, to do some work there the next time we go. And hopefully as I go this time we'll be able to see the areas that need developing and involve ourselves in those areas. So that's what I ask specifically for prayer in, that I would have insight, discernment, be able to make connections while I'm there for our future and our involvement there in the future. So anyway... 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 17 and go through the end of the chapter. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Nice way to start off, isn't it? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers... 
When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. When I was about seven years old, the kids in my neighborhood, someone had some boxing gloves. And I don't know if you guys have ever had that situation. Someone has a pair of boxing gloves, so you got to throw them on and, and you got to box and go for it. And I was about seven, but most of my cousins who where I was staying were about 12 years old, so they were older. And the first group of kids were pretty, you know, tolerant of me. They were allowing me to punch on them because I was just a little guy. I couldn't hurt them. But then there was this other guy, Joe. And when I started boxing him, he pinned me and started hitting me. Yeah, that's the way you box in Pico Rivera. Um, <laughs> and so he got me on the ground and he hit me on the side of the, my neck and he dislocated my neck. Yeah, that's how you box in Pico Rivera. Uh, <laughs> and I went inside screaming like a girl, but it's okay, I had a reason. Because of that incident, I ended up going into the hospital where I was put into traction for three days. I had this thing around my neck, and they had this weight, and I laid down, and all I could do for three days is stare at the ceiling. I was in a room with some other kids at Children's Hospital, and there was a TV over there, but I couldn't see the TV because I was like this, you know, and I was, uh, and so all I could do was look up, and I had some puzzles and some games but it was very boring, and so I had to entertain myself. And so one of the ways I used to entertain myself is by creating this illusion that the ceiling was actually the floor, and I could look throughout the hospital and pretend I was walking on the floor, and it became just this alternate reality to me because that was my perspective for three days. Hey, what are you going to do for three days staring at the ceiling? I was very creative. And so I'd have this imagine in my mind, this whole thing would turn out, there would be these instances where it seemed like the ceiling was the floor and the floor was the ceiling and everything was upside down. And I just had this picture of a whole new world out there where the, the lights that hung down were actually tables and those kinds of things. And it was an understanding, I knew it wasn't the way it really was supposed to be, but it was the reality I could create in that hospital situation. And you know, our world is upside down. And Jesus came to turn things right side up. To help us to see that, you guys, that, that's not the floor, that's the ceiling. That things aren't the way they appear you're not saying things as they really are. You're living in a, a delusion. And to bring clarity and understanding to these things. And Paul is addressing these issues right now. He starts off in verse 17 and he tells them that, I have no praise for you. Your meetings are doing more harm than good. You got to wonder, oh my gosh, what would you think if someone presented that to you? Your time together is doing more harm than good. Oh my gosh. What are you doing that's so bad that it would be better if you weren't meeting at all? I mean, think of that. If you're coming here and if Paul were to say to us, you know, you're getting here together, it's worse than if you weren't here at all. 
What would be going on to make him say something like that, to, to present that kind of statement? And this has been something that has been a part of this epistle that we've seen throughout. I mean, he's talked about divisions in chapter 1. He's talked about them caring about other people and not using their freedoms in abuse. And that's kind of what we've been dealing off and on throughout this whole book has been uh, uh, one, you know rebuke after one trying to reprove them in something else. I mean, he's constantly trying to give them some reprimand that's going to help them to see things clearly. And so now he's dealing with something that he says, you guys, this is more harm than good, you actually being here together. And it's especially concerning the Lord's table, what we call communion. It has to do with that, as that's the subject of this matter in the middle of this portion as we are reading. And you know, it's one thing to have issues. It's one thing to have problems. It's one thing to mess up, and we all do mess up. That's one problem. But it's another thing to misrepresent God and to have issues regarding the Lord. I think of Moses when he was out in the wilderness and he was mad at the people and he says, must I smite this rock again? And he smote the rock twice and God called him over and says, hey, Mo, come here. Did I tell you to smite the rock twice? And because you misrepresented me, you, you don't get to go in to the promised land. See, because that rock represented Christ and he's only going to be smitten once. And you really didn't represent me well. And we see these kinds of, of judgments that fall when we don't represent the Lord. Jesus said, if you, don't, if you are a stumbling block to these little children, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were drowned in the ocean. It would be better than that. It seems like anything would be better than that. But that's how bad it is. You do not cause them to stumble if you do. I have a real problem with that. And Paul is saying, your meeting together is not representing me. It's causing problems. And I have a real problem with that. It's worse than if you weren't meeting at all. If you meet and you don't represent God well. And so he's admonishing them, he's rebuking them, he's correcting them, he, he's giving them this reprimand so that they will understand something wrong is taking place here. Their issues aren't just within themselves, they are affecting the people around them. And hasn't that been what the book has been about? It's been, you guys think about other people. When you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, is it going to cause problems with someone else? If you dress and conduct yourself a certain way, is it going to affect someone else if you don't wear that hat? And we talked about that last week. And if you don't do these things, is it going to have an effect on other people? Don't just think about yourself. You need to have another perspective. And they weren't having this perspective. In verse 18, he tells them, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. To some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's, he's being sarcastic here. He's saying, I believe there's divisions, but I guess there has to be to show which one of you are good and which one of you are bad. He's kind of being satirical here. 
How do you know you're good? Well, I can prove I'm good because of how I have and what I have and the things I have. And I have these divisions in our midst that help us to understand who's good and who's bad. And he's really slamming them here. There's divisions, and it's obvious. These divisions are obvious what's taking place here among you. Now, these divisions aren't theological divisions. It's not like, I believe in this, I have this thought on predestination, and I have this thought on, you know, this aspect of doctrine in the Lord. These divisions are cultural divisions. They're class divisions. Remember, you've got some people who are actually slaves, who work in someone's field, work at someone's house, do somebody's labor, and then you have some people who are the owners of slaves who are the managers, who are more affluent. And you have this different class of people. And at this time, it was important that you flaunt your wealth. It was a part of status. And so you would want people to know that you were well-to-do. And so you would wear the super nice clothes. You would drive the nice chariots. So that people knew you had money. Now, we don't have those issues today. Good, you were supposed to laugh at that. But you see, what had happened is their flaunting was taking place, not recognizing that as they did this, they were actually hurting others around them, that as they flaunted their wealth, their prosperity, there were others that were in their midst that didn't have those things. And a church that has failed to take the heart of the message of the cross, which is this table that they were celebrating, you miss the point. At at this table, there is represented him who was rich, who became poor for your sake. And here you are wanting to assert your affluence to prove to everyone how rich you are, how much you have. And here is a table that demonstrates someone who had everything, was creator, and had given it all up. You see, and Jesus is saying, this is how things are supposed to be. You've got it upside down. You're living in the wrong way. You're living in the wrong influence. And in verse 20, he talks about their offense. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Their offense is they were in somebody's home, and once again, you have the idea of affluence. Now, imagine a home. If you go to someone's house, how are you going to have church and churches met in the homes? We talked about that Thursday night when we went through Philemon, the church that met in his home. But you have these people, and so you have the, the living room, so to speak, where people can meet, but then you have the outside, the atrium or courtyard. And so some people would get to go inside and some people would be left outside. 
And those who probably got there early were those who didn't have to work out in the field like the slaves. And so they would go inside and they'd have this spread. Why? Because that's how you show your affluence. Look, we got the lobster, we got the tri-tip, we got all the nice stuff here. And so we're sitting here eating and then the slaves come from working all day. And okay, guys, go on out in the courtyard. We don't have any food. Well, that's a drag for you, man. Oh, man, get some more butter to dip the lobster tail in, you know. And they're sitting there gorging themselves, eating, enjoying this time. And somewhere in this time, they would also have a remembrance, a celebration of the communion service. Oh, yeah, you know, guys, let's remember. The Lord gave himself, and they would go through the communion service at some time, and as they're enjoying themselves, these other people are outside, and they are just pained with hunger because they don't have food, and these people are in here celebrating the Lord and enjoying the feast, even getting drunk, while these others, their brothers, are in the courtyard watching this take place. And Paul is saying, don't you get it? What are you celebrating? You are celebrating the core and the heart of God, who Jesus is, what he did. And what did he say? If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be the slave of everyone. You must come like a little child. You don't come in your affluence. You come in your bankruptcy. That God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. You see, this is the way things really are in the kingdom of God. And you guys are missing the boat altogether. You are upside down and oblivious of what this represents. And, and this is the challenge to us because we also live in a culture where our goals can be misguided. Our goal isn't to get closer to God, isn't to honor God with our lives. We want more stuff. We want security in this world. We want comfort, we want pleasure. And Jesus' words are hauntingly echoing, what does it profit if you gain the whole world but you lose your soul. And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You guys aren't seeing things clearly. This is upside down. You need to see how God sees. And this table is the nucleus of the kingdom of God. This table is the heart of God being displayed and you don't see it. You don't see it. You're oblivious to it. And it's supposed to be something that represents you as well as you representing it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the table that you're celebrating. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's our response to what he has done. 
We connect to what he has done. We see things now through a different perspective. We turn the world back right side up. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And so Paul sees this and says, how can the love of God be in you if your brother is outside, he's starving, and you're sitting here feasting, and it's taking place around the Lord's table? You're doing more harm than good. Have you guys ever met someone who who does more harm to the gospel than good? Talk to someone who the way they represent Jesus is just terrific. Maybe they're very legalistic. Or maybe they're very immoral. I remember one time I ran into this person in this parking lot. It was outside this brewery and just talking to the person and it came up in the conversation oh yeah i'm a christian oh you are yeah and someone was driving by he goes hey look at those girls Whoa! and he started going and he started, i'm like oh man you know it's like so that's what a christian is and he's you know hey babe and he's cussing and going on and i'm just like dude you know the way you're representing our jesus is is not really a good thing it's doing more harm than good. Or someone's very condemning, very judgmental. Well, if you want to come to the Lord, you need to do this, 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 and this. And God will only love you if you do this, this, and this. And you find they're doing more harm than good. They're not representing God correctly. And this table, this communion, represents who Jesus is. That he gave himself for us. And Our response to that is that we would in turn give ourselves to others. And how is the love of God seen in us if we don't show the heart of Christ in compassion towards other people? And so Paul addresses this. He rebukes them. This is the heart of our story. It's our identity. It's our goal. It's our salvation. It's very, very important that we identify with this table and with what it represents. And so Paul lays on this rebuke, and then he goes on in verse 23, and he recites a tradition. And the book of 1 Corinthians was actually penned before the Gospels. And so what he is reciting here is the the first written account we have of what Jesus actually has done. And then we see it again in the Gospels. And it says in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is my new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there are some things that... Paul is trying to do as he recites this tradition. He is trying to give them something that they can connect to, the understanding of what this table means. And I want to share some words that I think it would be good to highlight or underline that kind of are poignant that Paul is trying to impact them with. The first one is on the night. Circle the word night. Because what Paul is saying, there was a specific time that this took place. It was on the Passover that night. It wasn't some ethereal thing, oh yeah, you know, somewhere in you know, the spiritual world. No, it was on a night. 
It was a specific night, time that this took place. The second word is the word betray. That's the condition and mistreatment of Christ, who was the Lord, and how he was treated. And he was betrayed by who? His brothers. By Judas, we know. One of his followers. So here is something that he wants him to understand. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. The one who was Lord, the one who was worthy of worship, of praise, was betrayed by someone like us. Now remember what's happening in their situation. There is an understanding of we have the right, we are wealthy, we can flaunt it. Jesus, who was the Lord, was betrayed by one of his followers. The third word is the word bread. When he took bread. It's important to understand that Jesus took bread because this bread is symbolic of the elements, the body of Christ and the blood. It's legitimately a spiritual presence of Christ. And that's pretty much how we view this. There are other divisions, I guess, in, in this area, other traditions. Lutherans have an aspect in how they see this. Catholics have one. We're more of a reform setting where we believe that the presence of Christ is represented in the elements, that this is something that is symbolic. And it's interesting that he says the bread, take this bread. He didn't say take my body but he said, take this bread, which is now my body. It's, it's to reflect and give image to what it represents. But he said, take the bread. The next thing he says is the cup. The cup is the covenant. It's the promise. It's the contract. It, a covenant is something that is made between two people. If you buy a home, if you buy a car, any large purchase, usually you have to sign a contract that signs and says, I am going to be responsible for paying whatever that amount is for this product. I am giving my signature saying, I am in agreement. I am going to do this. Well, the cup was his covenant, his blood given for us. And notice on this covenant that the contract is really on his part. Our part is to receive. What do we do? We just receive. He gave and we receive. And so Jesus said, I am giving you a contract, a covenant that I am making with you. I am giving of myself, promising your salvation. What do you have to do? I have to receive it. That's your part. My part is to give. Your part is to receive. And so the cup represents that covenant that we are to remember his signature written in his blood for us. And the last one I want you to, to notice is in verse 26, it says that whenever you eat this and drink this cup, you proclaim. And that word proclaim means to preach. This represents all that Jesus has done, salvation and grace given freely. That this is a message in itself. This table is a proclamation of God's love for you. It is a declaration. It makes known what I have done for you. And when you come to this table, you are actually preaching a message. 
You're giving a sermon saying, Jesus gave his life for me. And salvation comes by what he has done. And I receive what he has done. I am now a participant in this covenant that Christ has initiated. I have my part in the identity of Jesus through what he has done. And this is what the table represents. It proclaims this. And it's there for us to understand and identify with. He then goes on and he warns them in verse 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognition, without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I, I know we've heard this, many of us, time and time again, and it's been presented that if there is sin in your life, you can't partake, you need to confess that sin before you can come to the Lord's table. Let me ask you this. What if, are there any sins that you're not aware of, do you think? The answer is yes. <laughs> you just don't know because you're not aware of them. <laughs> Ask your wife. She'll let you know what they are. <laughs> you see, we are not totally aware of the sins that are within us. This isn't a matter of you need to get yourself right before you can come to God. It's not dealing with that. And again, we can see in the context when he talks about an unworthy manner. The idea is you should not take lightly the meaning of this event. You should not make this event of no value. You should not disgrace what is symbolized and what is being proclaimed through the Lord's table by your conduct by you gorging yourself while your brother is in pains of hunger. That's an unworthy manner. That's the context that he's dealing with. Because the truth is, if it was a matter of us being worthy to partake of this, none of us could qualify. I couldn't do it. Well, when you're worthy, then you can go and take the cup. When am I going to be worthy? How good do I have to be before I can come into the presence of Almighty God? How good do you have to be? You see, what this is, is actually God has made it so that I can come, but I need to recognize what he has done. I need to see things as they really are. And the clarity of this picture and the heart of this table is that you and I do not qualify to go to the presence of God. You and I are broken. Everyone in this room has issues. Everyone in this world has a problem that is inherent within themselves. And none of us are able to go to God and say, yeah, I'm, I'm clean, I'm good, you and me, we're okay. God says, 
I will make it so that you can come to me. I will deal with it. I will send my son. He's perfect. He will pay the price for your inadequacies so that you can come to me. And now my response is, oh my goodness. If God became a man and gave himself for me, it should shake my world as who I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to live, how I'm supposed to present myself, because it's not about affluence, it's not about status, not he who dies with the most toys wins. No, he just dies. What it's about is he who serves like God serves becomes like God. Represents God accurately. Because you were so good? No, but because you received his goodness. And then you followed his example and acted like he acted. And so now when you see someone, you see them in a different light because you know what it's like to be broken. You know what it's like to be deficient. You know what it's like not to be able to come before God unless you are dealt with those things internally. And God deals with them and is merciful and is gracious. And now you have the right to come in as his child. And he looks at you as a child that he gave his life for. You know, if you want to get someone really upset, start messing with a mother's kid. You want to see issues. I remember a friend of mine, he, his son, when he was little, was at a playground. And he was a pretty big guy, and this other kid started picking on his son started pushing him off the swing, you know, just kind of being bullying him. He saw this and he just kind of went up to the kid and he goes, hi, if you don't leave my son alone, I'm going to go beat your dad up. <laughs> don't mess with my kid, man. When you look at someone, you need to recognize that God gave his son for that person Paul talked about that earlier. Why would you stumble your brother for whom Christ died? And you see, how we see people has to be seen now in this perspective, that Jesus gave his life for that person. Even those egotistical, self-centered, conceited, obnoxious people. How do you really feel, Sam? <laughs> God gave his life for them, you see, and God gave his life for me because I am no better than those people. I'm in need just like they are, and when I see someone, I need to see them as the person for whom Christ died, not for someone that I, I'm smarter than them, I've got more money than them, I'm better. You're upside down. Jesus became a servant for them. That's what we need to do. That is a perspective. That's what we are supposed to have. And so the unworthy manner is talking about this attitude. It's not talking about you being good enough. It's talking about us not recognizing what's really taking place. He goes on and he kind of brings the verse 30, an understanding that 
This is why many among you are weak and are sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. And that doesn't mean it's like some of you do here on Sundays. This is, this is talking about actually dying. Now, this is not talking about condemnation. This is talking about judgment. And he goes on and he talks about that later. He says, if we judge ourselves, we should not come under judgment. In other words, deal with this so that God doesn't have to deal with you in this matter. You see, so many times we, we go through circumstances in our lives and we wonder, well, why is God dealing with me? What's going on? Well, perhaps God is trying to get your attention. Perhaps God is shaking you by the shoulders and saying, hey, wake up. The way you're living isn't right. You need to straighten up. And we think of it as some kind of condemnation, but really it's a loving God trying to get our attention and say, you can't continue living this way without consequences. How many people do I know who have gone on and, and are living in a life that is just causing detriment? They're separating themselves from God. They're not yielding themselves to what God would desire in their lives, and they're suffering the consequences of it. And they have to recognize, you know, sometimes the afflictions of God are good because every son that he has, he disciplines. And so look at this and recognize that God isn't condemning you, but he is judging the situation. His conclusion, verse 33, is, So then, my brothers, when you come to gather to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So then when you meet together you may not result in judgment. In other words, if you can't control yourself, then just eat at home. But don't come here if you don't have enough to share and to care for those. Take care of your eating at home, but don't cause someone else to be hurt. Don't be unaware of the needs of those around you. Be mindful of what this represents, and how you are supposed to conduct yourself. We have been invited to partake of the very heart of God. How God feels about you. How God feels about others. God has given us an illustration, an example, a tangible reality to a spiritual truth that Paul recites that tradition that on that night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. That he took that cup and drank it and said, this is the cup, the new covenant, my blood Pour it out for you. Remember this. This is how I feel about you. And I want you to be a part of that. I want you to partake of that. I want, that's why we call it communion. I want you to commune that. I want you to be a part of my heart for this world. I want you to see things how I see things. I want your heart to love like my heart loves. I want your heart to break like my heart breaks. I want your heart to care like my heart cares. I want you to be a part of who I am. 
to the people of this world. And what I have done for you, I want you now to represent. And I want you to proclaim. I want you to take this message. And I want you to live it out. And so the church in Corinth was making little of what is to be sacred, holy. It's the very heart of God. And instead of recognizing what this represented, it became meaningless. It became peripheral. That's not a big deal. And they were misrepresenting the heart of God, which does more harm than good. We need to make sure that our lives, if we are followers of Christ, don't do more harm than good. We need to make sure that we care as he cares, that we love as he loves, that we're as gracious as he is, that we reprimand in a way that is loving to benefit someone, not to condemn. We need to make sure that we honor God with our lives. You see, I have a hard time imagining when I look at the table and what it represents, when I look at Jesus and who he was and what his rights were and how he gave them up and was allowed to be betrayed and crucified and died for us. I have a hard time imagining that if I would have this attitude that I would not be able to deal with the, the situations and the people around me, that if I was a servant and sought to benefit others, that even if they betrayed me, all I do is represent Christ more honorably. First Peter says that when he was mistreated, he didn't counter and act again and, and revile against those who were attacking him. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even though he was betrayed, even though he was beaten by his friends, by his family, he trusted God. I can't imagine if we lived that way that we couldn't honor God in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But if we want to assert ourselves, if we want to demand our rights, if we think we are privileged, we deserve things, we are going to misrepresent the heart of God. And we'll do more damage to ourselves than we will do good. And so this morning, we are invited to remember the heart, attitude, and mind of Christ in the table, that he broke his body for us, that he shed his blood for us, that he gave his life for us as an example. It has made the way possible so that we can have relationship with God, and it has made the example that we can proclaim this to those around us and represent him accurately. If I could get Junior and Josh to come up. We're going to be invited again to remember what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that this morning this would not just be a memory. Oh yeah, this is something that we do. I know we did this a couple of weeks ago, but it's only fitting that we would again remember. And so when you come up 
And, and the way this works is we have the bread and the bowl with the juice in on each side. You come up, you can take the bread, you can dip it in the juice, and then you can go back to your seat, you can take it off to the side. But understand this, that this is your invitation to the very heart of God. And what you are saying is saying, Jesus, who you are and what you did is what I want to be like. And what you have done for me is my example of how I should be for others. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your mercy. Change my world. God, turn it right side up. I don't want to live a life that is not aware of your heart. I don't want to live a life that does not care for other people. I do not want to live a life that is upside down, that is self-focused and self-centered. Break me and change me. And may we identify with what Jesus has done and who he is. And may we partake of that together. As they worship, just as you feel led, stand up. You can come together as a family. If you're alone, you can come up by yourself. Take the bread, dip it in. You can go back to your seat and have that time before the Lord and, and recognize what this represents. And, and if you don't have a relationship with Christ, it's like, well, this is a little heavy for me. You don't have to come up and partake. If you're not sure if you're ready to make this kind of understanding and commitment, you don't have to come up. But if you want to, and you want to make that commitment, then you can. You're invited to. Let's worship. Jesus said that who the Son sets free is free indeed. I know my wife always says, well, what does that mean? She always asks the practical questions. What that means is recognition of what Jesus has done and dealt with our sin. That you and I are no longer, if we trust in his work, accountable for our sin. We are free. We have access to God. And that freedom inv invites us into this relationship with God that changes everything. What does that mean? It means that we are now able to seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness. We are able to delight ourselves in the Lord and our desires become his desires. Our hearts become his heart. And I pray that this morning we have been invited and recognize we've been invited to this life that is free. This life that is abundant. This life that is different than life as we've known it. It's interesting in, in 1 John, when John talks about the, this life that was the light of men, he's talking about Jesus, but it's almost like the person of Jesus is, is so, it doesn't convey, it's not the person, it is the life that was in him that changed everything. That's who Jesus is that changes everything. It's the life that he gives that changes everything. And we're invited into that life. And I pray that we would recognize that and you would allow it to change your world. Turn it upside down and make it back 
to the right priority because that's when you find the freedom. That's when you find life as it should be. God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you right now. I pray that you have a great rest of the day. Um, They're going to set some tables and things up here for the year in review. Again, you're all invited to stay. Uh, It's our ability or our responsibility to be accountable for the finances that come here and that you give with the donations here. We want you to know where the money goes. And so you guys are all invited to stay and have whatever we're having for lunch. Anyway, God bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of the day. And we'll see you guys later.